However, I suggest this morning, it would take a remarkable advertising guru to persuade us that the difficulties in life that we experience, suffering, sickness, bereavement, betrayal, and 101 other things, are good for us. No one would take that for granted. No one except a follower of Jesus Christ. And one such follower was a man named James, who was the author of a letter that we find in our New Testament. And we're going to be studying this little book, God willing, leading up to Christmas. It would help to turn in your Bibles to page 1213. If you have a pew Bible, can I encourage you, as I always do, to bring your own Bible. And those who have them electronically, you just tap on the screen. Uh, more and more people, no, mostly men. It's a very interesting phenomenon, this. that uh, Men seem to have these palms. I don't know why. Um, there must be female versions or something like that. Anyway, whatever. Uh, just turn to the Bible so you can see the words in front of you. Uh, we've entitled this series, Faith That Works. First, it's a very practical letter that relates faith to experience. To hard experience. Real experience. And the people that James is writing to, we're going to see, are facing, he says, trials of many kinds. And he tells them that you should recognise these things as God's means, God's tried and tested means, to strengthen and develop your faith in Jesus. So let's begin this morning under that theme, tried and tested, as we seek to understand and then apply what James says in the opening section of the letter in the first eight verses. Before he turns to his opening theme, and he launches in pretty quickly, we're introduced to the writer of the letter, as James tells us, who he is. Here's the author. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice two things from this. First of all, his humility. There are four or five men called James who are mentioned in the New Testament. We can't be absolutely sure which James wrote this letter, but for 17 centuries the church was absolutely convinced, and without boring you for the next hour or two, so you will miss your parking, um, there's no good reason, I don't think, to go against the tradition that says this letter was written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned in the New Testament. During the lifetime of Jesus, James's brother didn't follow Jesus. In fact, on one occasion, he actually accused him of being mad. But after Jesus died and rose again, James' life turned around, full circle. Why? Because we read in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that Jesus appeared personally to his brother. And the result was that this James then became a leader in the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. It's actually described as a pillar of the church. What's remarkable is when he writes this letter, he doesn't say, James, brother of Jesus, pillar of the church. You know, you sometimes get that, don't you? CVs or things that are written. I go to church sometimes to preach and they say, you know, they want to put something on the front like, Pastor Charlotte Chapel, you know. 
former missionary, or, you know, all the kind of things the world talks about. But um, I try to dissuade them mostly, but just... What does he say? He says, servant. In fact, the Greek word doulos is actually the word, it means a slave. And in the Roman Empire in those days, a slave was a bit of property. Like a hoe or a horse. You owned a slave and you did with him whatever you wanted. And if you didn't like him, you either sold him on or you got rid of him. There's a famous example of one Roman official who didn't like his servant dropped a glass and broke it. So he chucked him in his fish pond that was full of savage, savage murray eels and they, they ate him. It's the kind of thing they did with slaves in those days. But James makes no great claims about himself. He says, I'm a slave. But he does make great claims about whose slave he is. He says, I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greater claim he could have made about anyone and about Jesus. And so while the word slave indicates the humility of James, the fact that he's a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ indicates the second thing, his authority. See, it's just possible if you hang around after the service too long and you go back to Charlotte Square where you've parked your car, there may be a wee man there with a meter thing in his hand, a little electronic thing, and he's not looking up his Bible on the palm. He's actually, as far as I know, he's actually typing in a parking ticket for you. I won't ask to indicate how many people this has happened to in this church, but I suspect, go on, stick your hand up. How many people have got done? Come on, put your hand up. Wow! No wonder the city's doing well. That's amazing. Isn't it annoying? And you think, who is this wee man? Who do you think he is? I bet he hasn't got a university degree. He'd be doing that, would he? What sort of status has he got? He's got none at all except the status, the authority to issue parking tickets. And you cannot argue with it. Well, you can, but you'll get... <laughs> Won't make any difference. And if you don't pay in 14 days, you get double the fine. So, just telling you, in case you didn't realise that. Now, James says, I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what does that mean? It means, pay attention to what he says, because it's very important. But the question that arises out of this is, okay, he wrote this letter, what, 2,000 years ago, does it have any application to me? So notice the second thing as we introduce the audience. Who's it written to? Well, it says to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Unlike many of the letters in the New Testament, which are addressed to people in particular places, you know, the church of God in Corinth, Thessalonica, Colossae, Galatia, and so on, this is not targeted to any specific group in a place. It's written, he says, to the twelve tribes. This immediately tells us that this letter was written to people who were Jews by birth. Because the twelve tribes are the twelve tribes of Israel. And you learn from this that they've been scattered. The Greek word means being dispersed. And from this we get a sort of anglicized word, the diaspora. means scattered people. How have they been scattered? Well, just over 700 years before James wrote this, 
the northern part of Israel, had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And most of them had been exiled and thrown out of their own country. About 150 years later, the Babylonians had marched into the remaining bit around Jerusalem in the southern half, and they'd been kicked out and sent to Babylon. And over the centuries, a few of them, a few hundred thousand, had drifted back to Israel, but most of them were still scattered among the nations. They were the 12 tribes scattered. But James doesn't only write to people who are Jewish by birth, but specifically to people who had become followers of Jesus. For he refers to them in this letter 14 times as my brothers or my beloved brothers. They're family members together and they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing specifically to Jewish Christians. Now, your question now comes, well, if this is written to Jewish Christians scattered among the nations, does this apply to us? And I simply want to say, yes, it does. For all Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, are all, says the Apostle Paul, writing another letter to the Christians in the Roman province of Galatia. He says, you're all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to him, you are sons of Abraham. You used to sing that at Sunday school, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Well, I won't sing it anymore, but you, you get the point. That's what he writes. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, while James is writing to a specific audience and situation, this letter is a general letter. In fact, it's called, scholars call these letters that don't have a specific target, they're called general epistles or general letters. And this is a general letter that applies to all of us. If you are a Christian, you also are a slave of Jesus Christ. So if you're a slave, what do you do? You take instruction from your master. He tells you what to do, and you do it. And this is one of the great themes of this little book. Don't just say you believe, put it into practice. So, what's the first thing the Lord wants to say to us slaves this morning? After one word of greeting, which literally means rejoice, he then launches straight into his theme in verse 2. So look with me at three things. I kind of summarized them around three points. Because preachers, as you know in this church, always have three points. Sometimes they have more, but usually three. So if this helps you to, to focus your mind, here's the background. The background to this letter is, and this section is, trying circumstances. James recognises that his readers, he says, face trials of many kinds. Uh, the word trial here, we'll see later on, it can also mean temptation later in this chapter, but here it means adversity, difficulty, suffering of any kind. And as you read through the lectures, we study it together in church and in our small groups in a couple of weeks' time we begin, sign up for one, study with other Christians. You'll be sitting there this morning and saying, I didn't understand what he was talking about. And if he really meant that, I think he's wrong. It's difficult to shout out in an audience of this size. Go to a small group. That's where we earth what we're learning in practice. Okay? So as we read through James, and as you read through the book of Acts, which is the kind of history book of the church, we discover what kind of trials they're facing. Many trials. First of all, they were facing deprivation. They've been ejected from their homes and homelands. Many of them, as in today's world, are refugees. 
And they're forced to live, many of them, in poverty. Though we'll discover a few of the church members were quite well off. Problem was they didn't share it with the others, but we'll come to that later. And this was exacerbated because about the time that James wrote, and you can read this in contemporary history as well, not just the Bible, there were a series of very severe famines in the whole region. And food was in short supply. And added to this, these Jews also faced discrimination because they were followers of Jesus. Because if you were a Jew living in a scattered location, they had a kind of network of supports centered around the synagogue where Jews met on the Sabbath. But increasingly, these followers of Jesus were being alienated from the synagogues and pushed out because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And in many cases, the situation was even worse. They faced persecution. Active persecution. Because they were followers of Jesus. Now, this is some of the trials that they were facing. In fact, the word facing, it, 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 it literally means, in the original, They'd fallen into many trials. It's a really interesting word, this, in, in, in Greek. It's only used twice in other places in the New Testament. If you know the New Testament, you remember the story that Jesus told about a good Samaritan? And it begins with a man who went on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the way down, it says in the authorised version, which I still remember, it said, he fell among thieves. Or, it says in the NIV, he fell into the hands of Robbers. In other words, he wasn't planning to get mugged. It just happened. He fell. The other place it's used is in the book of Acts, right near the end, and next to the last chapter, 27, there's a story of a shipwreck. And the sailors try to sail to shore with the boat, but it falls on a sandbank and is wrecked. Same word that's used. They didn't steer towards the sandbank and say, let's see if we can wreck this ship. No. They just hit it without expecting it. Now, you get the point. He's saying that these Christians face many trials and they just happened. And they still happen today, don't they? Listen, you don't plan to be sick. You fall ill. We say the word. You don't usually plan to be made redundant. Be betrayed by someone you love. Get mugged in the street, or whatever. Or get a parking ticket. Which is a minor trial. You just fall into it. It happens. And contrary to what some people mistakenly claim, and even teach, Christians are not exempt from trials. I'm going to recommend various books that are on the bookstore. As we study James together, here's one of them. And Bible Speaks Today, commentary on James. Alec Motier writes, Christians are a special people, but they're not a protected species. Now, the important issue is, if this is true, is how do you face these trials? And notice what James says about responding to them. He says something quite incredible. Look at what he actually says and what he doesn't say. He says, consider it, Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into many kinds of trials. Now, is that not amazing? Consider it pure joy. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, enjoy your trials and suffering. That's called masochism. has no place in Christian thinking. 
Nor does he say that God enjoys making people suffer. That's called sadism and God is not a sadist. What he does say is, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Looking at words, because words are important, all right? The word consider, again, is an interesting word. Let me give you a sort of big definition, and then I'll give you an example which might help. To consider means to think and weigh up your options in order to come to a settled choice or understanding about something. Let me give you an example now. If you know the New Testament, Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi, and in the second chapter, this is what many people think is a great hymn that Paul has used in his letter. Regardless, he says, Of the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, he became a servant, he suffered, died in a humiliating death on a cross. What is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, before he became incarnate, weighed up the options and considered it was worthwhile leaving the glory of heaven to come to earth to die a terrible death on a cross. Why? Because of the exaltation and glory that would follow afterwards. In other words, he weighed up the options and considered that it was worthwhile. Now, using the same word, James says that when trials befall Christians, they should consider this as pure joy because painful though they may be, they are God's way, the only way that God can fulfill his purposes in our lives. So what is it that trials can achieve that should make us consider them pure joy? That's the second theme. It's not very good heading this, but I couldn't think of anything better. Okay, but I'll explain what I mean. What I've called maturing processes. Verse 3 gives the reason why Christians consider trials as pure joy. Look what he says. Trials are God's means by which your faith is tested. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, James makes an assumption here. He says to these Christians, by the way, You know this, but I'm just reminding you of it. Now, there is a great tragedy in the church in our country and in the West today. And that is that many Christians do not know what James is writing about. No one ever told them to expect trials. They were told, become a Christian and everything will be fine. You'll never have any more problems. So what happens when they come? Well, it's like, Small print in the insurance. You go back and say, I didn't know that. Very interesting. When the first missionary journey in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, his companion, they went around the Mediterranean world and they preached in different places and they planted churches and appointed elders to lead these churches and they went this long journey and then on the way back they stopped off at each place to do what we would call in evangelical jargon a bit of follow-up. We don't know exactly what they told them. In fact, Luke Luke tells us of only one thing that they told these new Christians. Acts 14, 22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And I simply say, if we're doing follow-up, this should be high on our agenda to tell new Christians. You will only enter the kingdom of God through many hardships. Well, you say, maybe I don't want to enter. It's pretty tough, it sounds to me. Yes, it is. 
Why does God allow these hardships? Well, James tells us they're necessary in order that our faith may be tested. The word testing, which James uses here, again, it's not a very common word, but there's a verb that goes with it. It's used quite often in the New Testament. Here's, here's another example. You remember the parable Jesus told? If you know the New Testament, if you don't, I, please excuse me, but there's a parable that Jesus told about a wedding banquet. And they got this huge big wedding banquet, and people promised to come, and the servant went out to tell them all, the feast is ready, come and join it. And people began to make excuses. And one guy's excuse was, he said, I can't come, he said. I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. That's the word that's used here. Of course, it's a joke because no self-respecting Jew would ever buy anything without testing it out first. What will you do? You test them out in the fields. You see if they're worth buying. Now, James says that trials test our experience. They show whether our trust in Jesus is genuine or it's just talk. James is going to say to us again and again, you say you have faith? Okay, how does it work out in practice? Have you got a faith that works? The word testing can also be used of testing or refining metal to purify it. Here's another commentary which is a bit more technical, but if you're a serious Bible student, you say, I really want to get into James. Here's a good commentary by Douglas Moo, American. This is what he says. The difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, heating it in the crucible of suffering, so that the impurities might be refined away, and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. So the primary meaning here is not just to test whether your faith is genuine, but to purify and strengthen your existing faith. Colin told us about that, about strengthening his athletic prowess. I'm just assuming here the fact he became a pastor meant that he didn't get the Olympic medal and changed an alternative career, but uh, he didn't tell me about that anyway. So, You see, the more you work the oxen in the field, the more you strengthen and improve their performance. The more your faith is tested by trials, the stronger it becomes. So James says, as Colin explained to the children, it develops, first of all, the quality of perseverance. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, perseverance doesn't just mean standing there like a dumb ox, taking it, whatever happens. The word literally means uh, to remain under something. And the idea is of remaining under a load, but carrying the load to strengthen your performance. So you develop stamina and staying power. But perseverance is not an end in itself. It just came back to me when I was preparing this. When I was in school, we had a boy in our class whose surname was Veer, V-E-R-E. I'd never learned what his proper Christian name was. But can you guess what all the boys in school called him? Percy, yes. He was known as Percy Veer. Never learned his proper name. Probably Stuart or Bill or something. I have no idea of it. He was called Percy. And he was just Persevere. Now, the testing of your faith is not to make you into Perseveres. It's to make you into Christians, Christ ones, people who are like Christ, with a fully developed Christian character. So James says that perseverance has a goal. It must finish its work, and its work is none other than perfection. 
Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Literally, the verse says, perseverance must have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete. Now, the word perfect doesn't mean without sin. Although all of us should strive to live without sin, we will not reach that goal this side of eternity. But it means perfect in the sense of complete, mature, not lacking anything you need. And James is saying to us, there is only one way you'll reach this goal. Through trials of many kinds. And that's why you should consider them pure joy. In the fellowship groups, we're going to be using a little booklet on James. It's a a brilliant little booklet by Paul Blackham from All Souls in London. And they're available in the bookstore. We've got them at a reduced price. Get a copy at three pounds. There are six studies that we're going to be looking at in those small groups. In the back half, there are further notes on the text. So if you don't buy any other book on James, even if you don't come to the small groups, I'd love you to come, but get a copy of this. This is what he writes about this, uh, what Paul writes. I was talking, emailing him this week. He says, James explains that the trials we face are like fertile soil for fruitful growth. When everything is comfortable and easy, our wayward hearts tend to trust Jesus less and less. When we are under pressure, our illusions of self-dependence begin to break down and we hold on to Jesus with the kind of love and trust that is right. These times of trials, then, are times of growth when our relationship with Jesus is deepened. When we share in the sufferings of Jesus, we are drawn closer to him. Therefore, trials should be times of pure joy because they're intimate times with Jesus. Now, let's pause here. I'm coming to the third and final point in a moment and ask, are they? Do we see our trials like that? You see, it's easy to nod your head when things are going well and your life is sailing along evenly to say, yes, yes, I believe that. Yes, in the Bible must be true. What happens when you fall into a trial? Maybe this morning you're in the middle of a trial. You didn't see it coming. Nobody could have planned it happening. It just hit you between the eyes. Tripped you up. Visit to the doctor. Letter in the post. Situation at work. Breakdown of a relationship. And suddenly your life is in turmoil. Well, it may then be quite another response to say, how can I consider this pure joy? How can you make sense of your suffering? Well, James has an answer. We turn to a third theme. Trying circumstances and maturing processes. Finally, believing prayers. Verses 5 to 8. Uh, some people think that James is a kind of funny book. It's a kind of hodgepodge of different things and he kind of jumps from one thing to another and people even suggest it was someone's kind of sermon notes that were all cobbled together, you know, by someone a bit later on. Well, uh, I don't believe that, but you can believe it if you like. But you, you will find that there are connections. Now, look closely, there is a connection here. Why does he suddenly jump from trials to wisdom? The Bible's self-explanatory if you just look closely. You know, this is not rocket science, all right? Look what it says. So that you may become... Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. So when you're facing many trials, what's the one thing you lack? Wisdom to understand what's going on. Isn't that true? 
to make sense of it all. And that's what James assures us. He says, if you pray for wisdom, it will be given to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God to understand your trials. Uh, J.B. Phillips, who paraphrased the New Testament many years ago, uh, makes this explicit. This is what he translates it. Well, it's paraphrased, really. And if in the process, any one of you doesn't know how to meet a particu- any particular problem, he has only to ask God, and he may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given him. As we'll discover in many places in James, there are some really interesting parallels with James and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, spoken by Jesus. This, the echo of this is Jesus. Ask, and it will be given you. Speaking of prayer. We can be sure that God will give wisdom to those who ask him, so we can pray for wisdom in full assurance of two things. One, that God is good, is generous. Secondly, that God is forgiving, without finding fault. The word generous means someone who has a single-minded intent to do something. And God has an undivided interest to give you what you need. Not what you want, what you need. So if you're in the middle of a problem at the moment and you don't know how to make any sense of it, he says, ask God, and God, God's intention, he doesn't hold the answer behind his back and you have to scrabble around to try and find out what on earth, you know. He says, ask God, he is generous, he is a giving God. And secondly, you may say, well, I can't really ask God because God, God certainly knows all the bad things I've done and when I come to him, he's going to say, well, what have you come for? You know, you don't deserve to ask for anything. You know, you've, 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 you've failed in so many ways. Ah, but this table reminds us that if we belong to Christ, we come and he asks. And when we come to the table and we seek God's forgiveness, he wipes it out and he never brings up from the past things that we've done, which we find hard in our own relationships, don't we? Even with those that we love. And we remind them of things from the past. God doesn't find fault. He's the giving God. But there is a warning. When he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. Now, does this mean that a moment of doubt disqualifies you from getting anything from God? If you take the verse out of context, it might appear so. Does it mean that if you so much as question God's will in your life and what he's doing, that you forfeit God's favour? Does it mean you have to kind of suppress all these thoughts of doubt and, and just stroke your courage and say, right, I believe. Well, Jesus said, if all the faith you need is actually mustard seed size. No, the doubt described here is of a particular person. It actually says that person who has no settled conviction about the Lord. It's a person who varies this way and that. He says, like a wave of the sea. It's the kind of swell. And with the wind getting stronger or changing direction, the person shifts this way and that way. And they're not really sure about God and his character. But the problem goes deeper than that. It's a person who has no settled commitment to the Lord. He says he's a double-minded man. Verse 8. Unlike the Lord who is single-minded in his intentions, this person is literally double-minded, double-souled, it literally says. S-O-U-L-E-D, not the shoe one. Someone who wants to keep his options about the Lord open. A person who wants to have a foot in both camps. Yeah, I want to know God's will, but on the other hand, I'm not really sure. And it's a person who's not really committed. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. No man can serve two masters. He can't have a foot in both camps. He'll either love one or hate the other. He's saying here, you've got to be committed to the Lord, genuinely seeking Him. Alec Matea writes again, God's mind is clear, 
But are we double-minded? Faith is our absolute confidence that he, that is God, will give us what we ask. Doubting is our inner uncertainty whether we really want him to give or not. And he says, such a person has no real security at all. He is unstable in all he does. And I simply, as I draw to a conclusion, want to say, you might say, well, I heard what you're saying, and I don't buy it, and I'm not going to follow that way. So, let me simply ask you a question. How are you going to deal with the trials of life? How are you going to deal with the unexpected that will certainly hit you at some time in your life? How are you going to, if I can put it bluntly, how are you going to face death without any real security in your life? What's the alternative? You see, this is, this is real Christianity. It's rooted in reality. It's rooted in hard experience. And God says, through it all, you can even consider it pure joy and you will prove and you will deepen your love for Jesus in a way that you would never have imagined otherwise. You know, one of the most remarkable things I find talking to many Christians, not all Christians, because this is a battle. So sometimes Christians have been through the most awful experiences and they say something like, it was a terrible experience, but I wouldn't want to have not gone through it because I've learned to trust God and love Jesus in a way that I never would have done otherwise. Almost finished, right? Really have. I began by saying that the food we eat, the products we use, the medicines we take are tried and tested, safe, beneficial. Sadly, in some parts of the world, that's not true. And in the past, it's not always been true either. So I finish with a true story of real experience. In May 1820, a poor couple, their names were John and Mercy Crosby. They lived in New York. They took their six-year-old baby daughter, Frances, to the doctor. She got a cold and her eyes were a bit inflamed. And the doctor prescribed hot poultices which they placed on her eyes and she was blinded for life. Never saw again. Yet she was never bitter about what happened. Towards the end of her life, at the age of 85, this is what she said. I have not for a moment in more than 85 years felt a spark of resentment against him, the doctor, because I have always believed that the good Lord by this means, consecrated me to the work I'm still permitted to do. That work was to write hymns. She wrote some 8,000 hymns. No Fanny Crosby or Francis von Alstein because she got married. She actually wrote under about 40 other pseudonyms because she wrote so many hymns that she thought people wouldn't keep publishing by the same person, which is interesting. A few of them we still sing today. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I want to foretaste the glory divine. This is my story, it's my song, praise my Savior, all that. That's a funny cross for him. But I want us to finish as we lead into communion in a moment with another of our hymns. Uh, you'll find the hymn book, but here's the first verse. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. 
For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. I hope you know that too. And you're assured of that. Whatever you're going through. Whatever you will go through. 